0: LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and today we present part two of our interview with Bernie Taylor discussing his book, before Orion finding the face of the hero. The interview resumes as we discuss how competing worldviews and interpretations of meaning and of the past have led to dangerous levels of global conflict. Yeah, it's tragic really that so much of the, the conflict that we see in the world is directly or indirectly rooted just in differing interpretations of these stories, these myths, these ideas, these archetypes. You know, no, I've got a handle on what this means about the past, the present, and the future. No, I've got the right idea. Is that like, well? You know, maybe nobody's got it quite right, but it's just as I say, it's it's just appalling that differing interpretations have to result in the destruction and violence that we see today. And to say a lot of people would tell well, yeah, we, we've got we understand." For example, religious fundamentalism—that's a problem. We understand uh, in, intolerance of uh, religious beliefs or spirituality and repression of that. But that's just one particular set of problems. But I actually think that almost everything, every dysfunction and everything that's basically going wrong is rooted in this denial of meaning in the world or that there actually being too much meaning. Basically, one person's story has to be correct to the exclusion of all others.
1: Exactly. I believe that there's a common element within all the stories and all the religions of all time. And even in and when you walk away from religion, you so-called become an atheist or a, or a pure scientist, you still carry these two these this still this still concept within us. And there's the concept of the great mysteries, and that there are two great mysteries, what came before us and what comes after us. So in the in the biblical sense, it's creation. Um in the Paleolithic Cave image, it's the cosmic egg with that expla that explodes and all the, the constellations come forward from it, and that cosmic egg a myth is told among the Vedic's, the Chinese, and the Pengu, um, the Norse, the, um, the Egyptians and so many people have this cosmic egg myth but they, and some some concept of creation, whether it's um, original creation or some sort of annual um, recreation. So there's, but the physicists ask the same question through the Big Bang. They want to know what came before and is there something before the Big Bang and was there inflation that built up the Big Bang? They're asking the same question of the first mystery. What happened? What, where does everything come from? And so we, we're somehow wired to ask that, that question of the first, first mystery. And then the second mystery as well is, well, what happens after us? And so people, scientists ask the question or, you know, where, where does, where does consciousness come from? And does, where does consciousness go after our own being? Of course, you've had Robert Sheldrake on. And I, I believe Rupert Sheldrake is absolutely brilliant. I don't agree with everything he says, but he's absolutely brilliant. And so the, we have all these questions of consciousness and, um, can we carry consciousness forward into AI so that we live, our consciousness lives eternally, um, until the, you know, the, the next big bang, I guess, and the next blow up of the, you know, the universe. And the, so we're asking the eternal questions that whether or not you're a scientist or a religious person, um or we're we're wired for these questions we'll never escape them there'll always be conflict between the how we interpret the great mysteries um and, and and all these great these at the core of many of these religions is also you know who is to interpret these these great mysteries or in in scientific circles who is it the peer reviewed journals which journal determines which which Referees on journals should determine what the great, the great mysteries should be and what commonly we should, we should, what we should commonly accept. So even within academics and scientists, there's conflict about the same questions of these two great mysteries. And if we look in all time and in all space, our
0: moment on this
1: earth is barely a breath
0: between those two great mysteries that are really one. You mentioned there about commonalities actually between science and spiritual perspectives. You mentioned the Big Bang, and how does that really differ from Let There Be Light in the Bible, for example? Sort of like, you know, boom, there it all is. And many of the ancient stories, again, you you alluded to this, uh, about creation, you know, the cosmic egg, about where all this comes from, suggest very similar things. And a lot of these myths that we uh, we have around the world and we've had across time, uh, it seems that they come from a single source because when you boil them down, uh, the same themes keep coming up again and again. And I think it's very interesting that contemporary cutting-edge science is coming out with either proofs or at least concepts and ideas, suggestions, oh, this might be like this, or we're, we're learning that this might be, this dimension of reality might operate like this. And a lot of scholars and academics are pointing out, well, actually, that fits with, you know, the, the the Vedic interpretation or the Buddhist interpretation, whatever it happens to be. And I've lightheartedly at first, but late, later more seriously said that CERN, for example, what the scientists there are engaged in, you know, with the Large Hadron Collider is a, is a quest for meaning. They're looking for the answers that you speak about. You know, CERN is the biggest cathedral in the world.
1: Yeah, it's the, there's, exactly, they're seeking the answers to the two great mysteries of which our life, our time in this world is barely a breath between them. And the, the Big Bang you brought up is a really important one because that, is, we have a history to that. And the, so of course, the creationism, um, let the red light so forth is kind of a, is a Big Bang. Well, in, there was a priest, Father Lamantra in the 1950s, and he was a Belgian priest, astronomer, math, mathematician. And he he mathematically hypothesized the idea of an expanding universe. And the scientific community across the board said, this is crazy, this is nuts. Pope Pius twelfth jumped out. He was the one that came on the side of the Nazis. He said, aha, science proves that there was a creation, therefore there must have been a creator. And then the scientific community jumped on again. This, this is absolutely nuts. We're not going to go anywhere. We're not going to touch this. Einstein comes out and says, your math is great is 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 correct but your physics is atrocious. Einstein says there's no big bang. We're not going down this road. It wasn't until Hubble um observed an expanding universe that they started to rethink that. Now, Lamanter's idea, he ca- it came it was in his head, the cosmic egg, that there was this creation of the universe. He had it in his head, it's 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 in the record. And so, the big bang that we know today actually started with a, the cosmic egg. So we, uh, the science of the Big Bang is built on mythology that was carried through religion and ultimately was accepted. And so now everybody thinks, every, you know, most people say, well, of course, the Big Bang. And we accept it because there's, it's a consilience between science and religion. No one actually knows that there was a Big Bang. No one knows that there, there's not a multiverses or some other dimension that we ca- can't possibly imagine. But it fits in within the framework of what we've been taught and what we can commonly agree on. So in a sense, we've created our own new myth, this myth of this myth of the Big Bang that our religious and scientific people can agree upon, and so we don't fight about it. Well, there's actually many, many different um, variations of the Big Bang, just as there's as, as Christians around the world and that they don't agree with each other. And then there's there's, there's many other non-Big Bang um, theories about how things came to be or that they always were. And, of course, they pop up in the journals here and there, and people poo-poo it because, you know, we kind of have an agreement. Let's stick to the agreement so everybody kind of is on the same page and we can teach this in schools. But the, the Big Bang started from the cosmic egg, and there's a direct line between them. We can't escape from these myths. Um, they're wired in us. The, our, our, we want to find out what came before and what came after us, the great mysteries, and how do we communicate with, with each other with it, within the, that framework. Um, the sets change, the costumes change, but the stories remain the same. And this sa- this same dialogue that we're having today, I believe the ancient Greeks had it, in, in the temples and that they 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 challenged each other with the same questions in a different medium because they didn't have Skype. And in tens of thousands of years, it'd be something completely different, but they're still going to tax themselves with the same questions. And my, my guess is they're not going to be working on 34,000 years ago. They're going to be working on hundreds of thousands of years ago. They have evidence that sorts out the dots between them. So it's... In, 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 since the release of my book before Ryan Finding Face the Hero, I've pushed the record of psychology and intellectual development of mankind from 45,000 years ago back to 34,000 years ago. 30,000 years ago, 30,000 years that were a mystery to us before and not a mystery of the, you know, you know what before, or what after, but a psychological mystery and lots of speculation about Knuckle Dragon caveman that, you know, there's a few one-offs that, you know, made some interesting cave art. Um, but the, We've we haven't changed, and so what is our future? What can we, well? What one thing we can learn is that we, since we're psychologically, we're not going to change. We're still going to have the same issues. There's always going to be bullies, and there's always going to be damsels and stresses, and heroes, and the mother child, and the teacher and the apprentice, and the 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 this, this shaman, spiritual leader, who who's, who's the wizard or or the the Jedi, the um the um Yoda in modern times. We'll always have these characters, and, and these characters will always revolve around in our circles, in both the, in our literature, in our movies, and in our personal lives. And because we will always have them, there will never be some great utopia civilization. How do we then keep the dialogue going that we have differences, and we will always have differences, and that we have to respect that there are um, we're not the same. The hero can the hero can also be the bully. You know Don Corleone, the mafia, you know, the mafia boss. You know it's, it's all about the family. But then again, he was the bully to other people um, outside of his his family circle. So you can be the bully, you can have the bully and the and the family man, the hero at the same time. And so and animals have the same thing. They, they they protect their own. And so going forward in our in our world. In our, in our great civilization, our great experiment, we have to continue the dialogue and the discussion and recognize the differences
0: that will always be there and we will never become a mold, one molded form. Well, one silly little point I just want to mention in passing. You were talking earlier about this guy, uh, Lemaitre, uh, with regard to uh, the Big Bang Theory. Many years ago, I used to buy stage pyrotechnics and fireworks from a company called Lemaitre. Uh-huh. And I used to wonder, you know, I just think, oh, I guess maybe there's some guy called Lemaitre who founded the company or something. But <laughs> when I read when I read your work, I thought, hang on, a minute, they're selling fireworks. It's called Lemaitre, you know, it's because it's a big bang. And uh, that was, a, I don't know if that's the case, but I just thought, I bet that's the that's reason. Good.
1: That's good. You know, the, it probably is the connection. So, and Hubble, the Hubble telescope was, of course, named after Edwin Hubble. Mm-hmm. And um, some people say, you know, it should have been really the Lemaitre telescope because that's where it came from. But yeah, the big Bang, the Big Bang, yes, it's probably what it was. So someone was very clever
0: about that. Yeah, I had read something rel- relatively obscure. Um, we're talking about conflicting worldviews and ideologies. Touched upon that several times, actually. But with regard to your own work, or maybe some of the circles that you've moved in since you started presenting your research and your ideas, I've interviewed people such as the aforementioned. Graham Hancock, also people like Robert Schock, Michael Cremo. These are people with what would be gently called divergent ideas about hum- human history and, and the you know, origins of life and, and the earth and everything else. They have come across, and I have come across as well, a lot of politics and agendas and bias and egos, in fact, in the worlds of archaeology, anthropology, etc., The whole way people that people get their ideas published and with the problems with peer review and clashes of personalities. I mean, Egyptology is a hotbed of this sort of thing. So I just wondered if you've come across any, any conflict or any issues in these areas in your own work.
1: You mentioned three people. Michael Cremo has spent, has given a lot of academic scientific presentations. He's been very successful. Now, everybody isn't on, everybody in science is not on the page of Michael Cremo, but his his story is out there, it just needs more evidence over more time. Um I believe that Michael Cremo's work will be I don't I don't want to say vindicated because he's just on a path of travel that it just needs more time and more work. Um and I'm a I'm not i I'm not saying I'm a Cremo believer, but he's not someone that makes up stuff. Um he when he when Cremo says something his credibility is on the line as an individual, and I greatly respect the work that he puts into his work. The other two you mentioned, um, they do things differently. And I, I, am, a, I am an alternative to um, Graham Hancock and um, Robert Vall and and Robert Vall, those were the two. Um, and the how they see things is that if someone doesn't agree with them, then they're hiding the truth. And they're not hiding the truth, but they just have a different perspective, um, or you don't have enough evidence to prove it. And the this concept of, you know, Hawass is the Egyptian, they're all pointing the finger out. Well, he's, you know, he's practically buried, he's been out of power for many years, and there's many thousands of other Egyptologists that just don't believe the story. Um, and it's turned out that many of the stories that those two were selling, especially the um, the um the orion constellation theory has pretty much been blown out of the water by so many different places people in the alternative it's it's not it's past credible at this point it's not credible anymore and but what they do is they just keep pointing over there you know that person is hiding the truth from us they're 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 keeping it out of the schools they're keeping it from the masses well how science works is that you kick off an idea and you spread it around the communities, the different communities, and not just the scientific communities, but also you go to the, you go to the alternative communities, and you talk to the schools, and you publish, and you get your voice out there. And the stuff that is real will stick. If it doesn't stick, it's probably bogus. And but the the answer is not to say, well, that person they're hiding it from us and form some sort of movement behind us. That is exactly the same thing Donald Trump did. Donald Trump said the um, you know. The, the swamp in Washington is destroying all your lives, and therefore you need to follow me because I'm going to drain the swamp. Well, of course he gets into Washington and he just brings, he just makes it a deeper swamp. Um, but it's the same kind of a strategy. So, how, so how is it? You, so, the other part of the question is how is it related to me? Well, what I did was I did took a different approach, and I didn't blame anybody. And what I said was that the there's different perspectives and there's different ways of seeing the world, and we're neurologically different. And so some people will have have more better artistic abilities or to see the embedded images than others who are better at counting things. And that b- b- these these neurological differences between us are what makes us, you know, as a species, absolutely fabulous. And what bring, brought us this this cave art and that these these embedded images and these stories. And so by pitching it that way, I've had open doors. I've had open doors. My first two presentations—one was at Oregon State University, the other second was at um, Institute for Astronomy at U of H—and uh, so hardcore astronomers. And I've I've had many requests to give presentations at different places, uh, academic environments. I just don't have the time to go, you know, travel around the world and speak to universities. Um, but I have many. Um, I went into the alternative world, um, call the non-mainstream podcasts. I've done I've done more science we'll call it mainstream type of podcasts and i have done alternative ones Um, and because people relate to psychology and astronomy and uh, people per se just people stories people podcasts because there's a people want to hear the story they want to learn about themselves and how they can move forward and, and 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 their families and they they it gets they get tired of the um, you know that person's at fault and that person's hiring the truth because there's so much information out there today and you're you don't have let's putting put the numbers out there science and nature have a readership of about 350,000 each the journals well and most people read a few lines um, joe rogan podcast has a listenership of two two hour listenership um, for, of about 10 million people. Okay, so the popular media has a much greater influence on the world than the, the so-called scientific literature, even in the two big journals. And, and most of the journals have a few thousand readers. So if you want to reach the world, it's not by you know arguing with you know Hawass in Egypt and pointing the finger of a guy who's fu- fundamentally buried a- academically, but it's to put your your voice out to. Uh, people in a non-threatening way, and they'll listen. Um, and most, almost every podcast I've been on and every place I've given a presentation, they've they've invited me back and to, to tell more of the story and to go into the psychological aspects of this. Um, another week and a half, I'm giving a presentation to an entire high school. Can you imagine that? An entire high school. It's going to be recorded and it'll, we'll put it on YouTube. And... Um, and we're going to talk about neurodiversity, the art of seeing different, and how one can um, look into these images and learn about themselves, that there are multiple perspectives, and that what we can learn about ourselves from the Paleolithic mind that is still our own. And so I haven't had pushback, but I also recognize, and I, I've had lots of nice emails from archaeologists around the world and anthropologists, and they're, you know, they invited me to come speak, and, you know, all these sort of things, and they they recognize that, um, there's a path forward, and that there was a, there was a, a there was a darkness from what they couldn't figure out some things from the past. A lot of missing pieces, and a bunch of them have just come together. And so there is a, a new path for them. And there's a place for them to explore, and there's lots of awards out there for people in lots of caves where they can find similar images and decode the messages. Especially, of course, the the gesture language, I believe is an entire language in there. I just came up with about 20 um, gestures. So I haven't had that pushback, but I also haven't been pointing the fingers um, at people to say it's their fault and they're hiding this. And um, and mainstream is out to get us. And I, I'm not fundamentally, you know, I'm not paranoid. And um, you know, that's how I've had a different approach and I have different results. And there's many other people that have had the similar approach and, um, as i've had and they've had you know positive results and i believe that we can all work together and you know move forward from some of the ideas that from the past that people have that you know now that we have this teacher's edition textbook we can see where the egyptians got their images from and what they were originally we can see the greek stories um and the myths we can you know we don't need to guess about what you know the hundreds of ideas that people have, we can start connecting the P, the dots to learn to find that message to find it. And this this is really important. And um, modern modern astronomy is based on Greek astronomy from uh, Ptolemy, I believe, about eighteen hundred years ago. And Ptolemy um, he he came up with most of the modern constellations and mo- other in the northern hemisphere and about half of those come right out of the Pellethe cave at El Castillo. And so we had find the same characters in the same order that we, with um, you know, Hercules, Nagia, Pegasus, Pisces, Cetus, Orion, and so forth. We find the same ones. Well, our, Ptolemy was also the librarian, head librarian of the librarian, Library of Alexandria. So this was the guy who had all the records from the past. And we lost those records. Because someone burned it. well, there was a, there was a invasion and they burned down the library. And so we, we can, people have always said Ptolemy was a liar and he was a thief because there's many constellations he has he couldn't have seen because they were too far south. So where did he get it from? Well, I explain that because it was actually now from a different time. Um, a different time, um, that he had it when, when those, he could, when those stars were seen in that place. And that, so Ptolemy, lost everything in the fire and as a civilization we almost lost everything too except the remaining records and so we don't want to burn down we don't want to burn down the libraries because there's even though there's there's a lot of good information out there and but there's a lot of you know some let's 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 reread the books and let's you know find the direction we this gallery of disc is like the original library it's the it's the it's the library of Alexandria before alexandria and now we can see you know where does Golbeki tepe come from where does the great sphinx come from and where does Egyptian civilization? We can actually start connecting the dots from a more distant time. Native Americans have a, a rich tradition, as do people in South America and Africa, sub-Saharan in Saharan Africa. Where does, their, where does their history come from? Because now there is a history that connects all these things. And to, I believe that it would be more beneficial to start looking at all these people and see how everything merges together, this conciliance of science and religion and art, and mythology among all the cultures in the world rather than this, this this fight over you know people that have really retired in Egyptology civilizations. And that's just my, my view, my alternative to the alternative.
0: All the schools of uh, academia, all the, the schools of thought that you've mentioned have part of the story and uh, it's the same story. Uh, just a quick note for listeners, I mentioned Robert Schock. You mentioned Robert, oh, Robert Schock. Oh Rob yeah. So Robert Schock. You yeah, mentioned so his, Robert Bouval. Bouval is the Rob uh, yeah. he, he's the so Orion guy.
1: So he, well, actually where he has to gain is that he can actually now look so the origin of the Sphinx, the Giza Sphinx, is this El this and El Castillo Cave. Mm-hmm. Because it's a mix between this this mythical character and a um the lion. I mentioned lion is Leo. So um Robert Shock now has a direction to go start looking about where this comes from and what it all means. And what, so Robert Shock and really John Anthony West, they were trying to say that they, there was a civilization that was older than the ancient Egyptians and that, the, and that they built the, they were originators to the Sphinx, the Giza Sphinx. And so Gobekli Tepe kind of, you know, is older than that and now, so it's, it's not as important because we have Megas older than the, the, the Great Sphinx. Well, now what we have is we have a story that's a monument in, on Giza Plateau that is directly connected to an image 34,000 years ago. And John Anthony West said that you can't pick and choose from Egyptology and that there's in the, in the, in the, the line of the kings, it goes back 36,000 years. Well, this is, go, I'm saying it's 34,000 years ago. we you know, that's a shade, hair shade difference. John Anthony West was right. Because he said the Egyptians had it all along, just like the Native Americans had it with the migration of the salmon, but we just weren't listening to them. And if we try to keep coming up with all these new stories and new stories, then we're just going to go astray. Stick to the story of the ancient Egyptians. And you'll find the origin of the Giza Sphinx. It's not the the building of the Sphinx, but it is without doubt it is the origin. So Robert Schock now um, who is a mainstream academic who, who gets paid by I believe Boston University, he's actually you know he is in the system, and, and that's okay. And he's been able to work in the system and out the system, a nomad in two different worlds. Uh, but he actually can gain by the by exploring. The connections between the, this gallery of disc and the Giza sphinx. And how did one, one become the other and one, what they can actually learn from it. And, and for Boval, he was right that the Leo was, lion was the Leo. He gets credit for that one. And, um, I, that should be, um, you know, thumbs up, Robert Boval. You, um, you got it. Lion, the lion is Leo. Um, and give him that one.
0: Well, just as an aside, actually, I learnt uh, a new word from uh, reading your work, and that's uh, therianthropy. Uh, just, to, <laughs> just, just just thinking about this in the context of the Sphinx, which we've been talking about, yeah. and for people, for listeners who don't know, uh, here's a definition I found online. Therianthropy is the mythological ability of human beings to metamorphose into other animals by means of shape-shifting. It is possible that cave drawings found at Les Trois Frères in France... Depict ancient beliefs in the concept. The most well-known form of therianthropy is found in stories concerning werewolves, i.e. lycanthropy. And I was fascinated by, again, I said we didn't have time to get into this, but here I am getting into it. But in all of your work and your presentations that I read and looked at and in many other areas comparable, it's this sort of blending and merging of animals and humans in mythology. But also mythical beasts or a blend of a, a, one animal with a bird or a fish or whatever it happens to be. And, uh, there's something very significant in all of that, but not really sure if we fully grasp what that is.
1: Oh, so we can look into the Paleolithic Record of this, this of Disc and we can find the, the, the origin of the story. So I said we have this hero that goes on this journey. And as he goes on this journey, he, he overlaps with the animals. So he, he, he overlaps with the horse to become a centaur. He overlaps with the, um The dolphin to become a merman. He overlaps with the eagle to become an avinoid, a birdman. And he he actually overlaps. His head overlaps with that of the juvenile giraffe, and so the mother giraffe is actually protecting the shaman, this uh, this apprentice on his journey. And so in in the shamanic in the shamanic tradition, and actually I should just say animist tradition, because Native Americans did the same thing, is that when the hero goes on his journey, he he draws on the strengths of the animals. He becomes as strong as an ox, as fast as a cheetah, and he has the wisdom of the animal. And so, as he's going through this panel on this story, he's drawing the strength from these animals and these animals, and the, the human character, which is fully formed, overlaps with an animal character that's fully formed. And that's how we find the therianthropes. And so, there, there, it's the therianthrope is is that what, what we spiritually have become? And if you've ever done yoga. You're doing a therianthropy. You merge, you become you know down dog. You 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 do the lion, the roar, and you do the the you do the the, the crocodile poses. You do all these different poses, and at the end of all of the yoga practice, at the end of the um at the end of the practice, you end with savasana. You die, and um so there is life and death and everything, and we and we can harness the spirits or the summon the spirits of the animals just as we do yoga today and as they did in this the cave and the images and so that's where the 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 animals are still within us we're a batman with better toys that we we carry that animus bat within us in the many forms that we project our psyche
0: Ernie, just as we begin to bring things to a close for today I've got three final points I'd just like to raise or put to you. I'll give you two uh, in one go so uh, <laughs> so we move things along. I have this feeling that I get from so many things I've read and felt uh, throughout my life, uh, but also I was, these feelings came up again when I was uh, exploring your work, and that is that almost like the whole of creation and existence in itself as a totality is like some kind of journey or quest. I don't know if there is uh, an alpha and omega point, but the entire universe feels like it's a little bit, I suppose, echoing the hermetic maxim from earlier, you know, as above, so below existence feels like it's that epic journey. Uh, second of three points is, uh, I mentioned earlier about stuff keeps getting older and we keep rewinding and going further back. Yeah. I, I get the feeling and ter- whatever your views about, uh, the conventional. Uh, story of of uh, evolution of life on Earth. I, I just get the feeling that modern uh, anatomically advanced humans, intelligent humans, have been around on Earth for quite a lot longer than appears in the conventional uh, version.
1: Well, psycholog- I would say it's psych anatomically we've changed, but psychologically we probably haven't changed very much. And there's an example of, there's a man, and I forgot his name, but he, he still exists today. And he has like 15% of his brain, the same brain matter that you have. And he is, you know, he he went to school, he's married, he has kids, he's functional, has a job, all that sort of stuff. So what's fascinating about that? And so you watch it, and so that where it comes to the concept that you know we we use less than 10% or 15% of our brains. That's where it comes from because this comes from this one man who was missing everything that we think matters, but it obviously doesn't. So if if so we can't really look at, I, I don't believe we can actually just look at brain size to determine what a person could do half a million years ago. I, I don't believe it because this man shows you don't have to have it. Uh, so I, I'm with Michael Cremo that things are a lot older than we could possibly imagine and it'll just be time more time that we, we evolve more of that evidence. But, but how did, I believe that um, really the big question is why do we exist as humans? And why haven't we accounted beings like us from other plants? Why, you know, why aren't there, you know, other animals just flying our way in spaceships or some sort of portal device? I believe that humanity is unique to this planet. And this is, ha- this is why. It's because the female menstrual cycle is 29 and a half days on average. Okay. Which is exactly the same as the timing, the lunar cycle. And so there, there were, there were, they um, were, something after, so chimpanzees and other, and other apes are in sync with the lunar, the light and dark cycles of the, of the sun and the moon. And so they're, they're up and dance, they're up and about during the full moon night and they go, they sleep during the dark moon night. It, it's just a thing. So they're biologically time, their, bio, their biological clock is timed to the light, dark cycles. But what a chimpanzee can't do is tell you what's going to happen two lunations ahead, two full moons ahead. But, so this is what I think what happened some point in distant past, is that there was something past a chimpanzee. And that something was a female. And that female recognized that her, some point her menstrual cycle coincided with the moon. And that she, she, she took a, she took a, <clears throat> she walked somewhere. And then at the next po- time that happened, that, that, that menstrual cycle, that point, she walked back again. And though she could actually take a journey from point A to point B and back again and be able to time it through her own biological clock and the moon. And she probably went, she probably recognized that the, she, she could, she could go find seashells under, you know, the lowest of the low tides, um, and the spring tides. And she'd have more seashells, whereas at the highs of the high tide, she'd have less. And those those might have coincided with her own menstrual cycle. And by being able to do that, she could then tell time. And the, and, and she, she, chimpanzees are slightly off from 29.5 on average. They're about 28. And so there's some genetic difference that gave that chimpanzee 29.5 average. Probably happened millions of times, and some of them them succeeded, some of them didn't, and the ones that ultimately succeeded where we come from. So then they they had, then we had this lunar cycle, this lunar timing that the Native Americans have in their calendars to tell them when to hunt and to fish and so forth. But the problem is the moon is out of sync with the sun. They had to reset the moon every year. And so what they did was, they timed it off some, um, distinct, some, um, starter species of animals. And animals, Native uh, indigenous calendars around the world—they typically start by some animal. The early part of the season, a migrating fish or a bird or something like that. So then, so then they were able to reset their calendar every year with the with the new animal, and they had some sort of first salmon ceremony or first geese geese ceremony. And then the next stage that happened is people started to recognize that the moon—they were when the early part of the year some certain stars appeared. And when those certain star- stars appeared, they started making stories about those stars, and ultimately those stars became the constellations. And the first ones are probably Sirius as a dog, Ursa Major as a legged animal, Orion as some sort of a hunter, and Pleiades as a group of people. Because around typically women, because around the world, those four those four groups are you know it's not everybody around the world has them, but it's like 60% of the world has components of those those four. And so we, through that, we started to tell stories of people who traveled through the night sky. And we found a great beyond in there. And of course, the, the highest point on the earth to reach them are the high mountains. And that gives us these cosmic mountains. And you go around the world, everybody's got a cosmic mountain. If they've got, they're on a plane, they build a cosmic mountain so that they, they can speak to the great beyond. And so where do we come from? And evolution is your question. I believe it's time to the astronomical bodies. And if on a different planet in a different space, if they don't have their menstrual cycle time to the moon, they'll never make that connection between the cycle of the the human of the of the being with the cycle of time itself. And then they be they 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 remain as chimps or beetles or fish that they react physical chemically to the light and dark cycles without being able to see the future or reflect on time, the past in a timing way. So that, that's it. I wrote a paper on that for an astronomical journal about 14 years ago, and I asked the question: Are there geese on Cygnus X, on a different distant planet, Cygnus X? And Cygnus X's planet was there; it was slightly off timing from from the Earth. That its, it's moon was off, slightly off timing with of the Earth, and so it couldn't have the same cycle. So the um, it would be a different time frame, and that we we couldn't. I don't believe that there is life, thinking life. Uh, In an infinite universe, anything's possible, but I don't think there's thinking life and anything um, near close to us. And I don't think we're ever going to see it because time is the difference. And you have to have something to make the connection to the two. And I believe it was first the moon um, and the, with the menstrual cycle of of the the female. And then it was the, um, then it was the stars. Um, and if you don't have life would have had to evolve thinking life, timed life. Where people can see the future, reflect on the past, what have happened, in some other completely different way, I can't imagine. But um, so this all times back to the evolution of man. My work does, and biological time. I wrote a little bit more about that. But that's yeah, we're we're on a journey that we're we're hurtling through space on our experimental planet, and we'll see where we end up in a few million years.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, you actually touched upon that whole other subject for a whole other day and a whole other show there, which is the fact that life on earth is dependent on the moon, uh, which Mm -hmm. is particularly interesting because in many ways, the moon does not make sense. The moon should not be there. It's just, it defies astronomical logic. But as I say, that's for another day. Final point then, Bernie, before we finish, and you've alluded to this and touched upon this several times throughout our talk. What do you feel that the core of your work that we've been drawing out here? Uh, what do you feel the relevance is for our time going forward uh, the implications for our future if we're to have a future well i believe
1: that we will have a future because we've had many setbacks in the humanity of man um, and but i believe the future will be different i believe it'll be winners and losers Twelve thousand years ago cave art ends in europe at the same time it shows up in a Big way in the greater Sahara, whereas there was no cave art in the Sahara before, sorry, or rock art in the Sahara, Sahara, beyond that. And of course, the Sahara is the size of the United States, but it's also now the greatest art gallery in the world. And 12,000 years ago, when they arrived on the, on the Sahara, they started um, etching out images of hippopotamus and alligators and giraffe and rhinos and all these animals that we, we today don't find in the western, northwest Africa. We don't find them there today because it's arid land. Um, and on, on the coast, we killed them off on the coast. But we don't find them in the Sahara because it's, it's arid. But you can walk for weeks now through the Sahara and come across a, a rock art image of an alligator. And so I believe that um, the, the Paleolithic artists left Europe 12,000 years ago. and They went on the move. They found greater abundance of animals in West North Africa. And that's where they, they, they remain to this day. Those those people those art as great artists, and so the lesson to be learned is that the world will always change. And twelve thousand years ago, the, the the Greater Sahara was huge lakes, greater than the Great Lakes in the United States. And the the world keeps changing, and the the climate keeps changing. There were all there's no such thing as climate change denial because we, it's always changing. Um, I'm not talking about weather from the year, but over thousands and tens of thousands of years, and hundreds of thousands. That, and there'll be winners and losers and that, um, being on the move and exploring new places and coming back to tell the story is how we will continue on to be successful as a species. And I'm not saying, I'm not pointing to Mars as plan B, but within our own Earth itself, there will always be habitable places and there will always be places that we will, um, do very well. And wherever we are, we will always have that campfire and there will be people the the you and I will be around the campfire sharing that myth of all time that that myth of the hero that goes on his journey that goes to a faraway place and fate, you know battles the, the 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 monsters and the demons and ultimately comes to recognize that that monster and demon is within the self and returns back to set to tell the story to set society free and I believe that you know today we are around that campfire in, in a metaphorical way and that will the, that campfire will exist for all people in all time in, in a different place.
0: Well, Bernie, today we'll be discussing ideas contained in and spinning off from your book before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero. You also mentioned your other book, Biological Time. I hope I'm remembering that correctly. Those are widely available online. People can find them easily. Perhaps you'd like to tell uh, listeners about your website and just anything else you'd like to put out there. Sure. I used before, well, before Biological Time is out of print, although it's in the United States, there's an Indian publisher that
1: has it, um, and but I use Before Ryan for everything. So my web page is beforeryan.com. I use hashtag tag Before Ryan after everything I do on YouTube. I've got a lot of videos out there and lots of interviews, and I use com with spelled out as one word. Put them on Twitter, Reddit, um, you know, everywhere, Facebook. And so if you're not a big reader, you know, go watch the videos and you know, share them with your friends. Follow me and there's every week I have a new video or a new interview or a new works images coming out. And
0: it's been an exciting journey and um, I'm glad that you were able to join me today. Splendid. Well, once again, Bernie, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. It was a pleasure. i love to be on the show again.